Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to this week's episode and strap yourselves in because it's a deep one about the nature of reality. Most of us feel there is a world of stuff out there, trees, cars, buildings, clouds. People believe we are born into this world in the form of a body, which has a brain and a mind in it. But what if I was to suggest that this isn't actually an accurate picture of what's really going on? If that is the case, then what really is the nature of reality? Joining me for this episode is Bernardo Castrup, who has two PhDs, one in computer science and another in philosophy. He was employed first at CERN, the European Council for Nuclear Research, where he began working in artificial intelligence in connection with the Large Haldron Collider. Then he moved on to artificial consciousness, wondering if he could build an artificial conscious entity which piqued his interest in philosophy. Alongside Bernardo is philosopher Rupert Spira, a teacher of non-duality and what's known as the direct path. Now, Rupert and Bernardo come at the nature of reality from two different perspectives, but they arrive at the same conclusion. Now, the current widely accepted model of reality is called materialism or physicalism. And most people accept materialism without really understanding what it means. In this episode, my guests explain materialism, point out its inconsistencies and incoherence and provide a template of reality that does work. Anyway, I would suggest this episode is one to listen to when you have time to concentrate on it. We do go deep, but we start slowly. And remember, this might just change your view of reality and yourself. It is definitely one to share with anyone who's interested in thinking deeply about the meaning of life and its implications. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Rupert, Bernardo, lovely to see you both. Uh, let me start with you, Rupert. How are you? 
Very well. Lovely to see you, uh, Simon and Bernardo. Good to see you. Lovely to see you again, too. And Bernardo, you and I have never met, so I have to say it's an honor and a privilege. Are you well? I'm doing well. Um, yeah, yeah. Feeling, feeling good. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. I, I'm very much looking forward to it, too. And um, there's that saying, there's nowhere I'd rather be. So uh, on one hand, that takes care of time. However, on the other hand, obviously, time is pressing and we've got a lot to, to get on with. So let's dive straight in. And I want to ask my first question, which is, how and when did you first to meet the two of you? We met in Amsterdam. Uh, Bernardo, you'll probably remember the date. It was on one of my uh, pre-COVID. I used to go to Amsterdam twice a year to, to, for a weekend. And Bernardo and I had been in correspondence. And we met one Sunday evening for dinner at the end of my weekend. Do you remember which date, which year it was, Bernardo? I also don't remember. Five years ago, was it? Easily. Five or six, it, it maybe even even seven. Anyway, we 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 met, and and uh, I think we already intuited that we had um, a lot in common, and it was one of those uh, lovely meetings where there's almost no um, impediment to understanding, no need to explain your terms, no need to just immediately. You, you 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 say half a sentence and it's not necessary to complete it the other one just just knows immediately what you're saying so it was one of these it was um certainly for me it was very special meeting bernardo immediately i felt it was like speaking to an old friend we just the conversation just flowed so so readily and so easily and it was such a pleasure to meet someone who had come to this understanding in a completely different way from the way i had come to it and yet there was such a deep shared understanding and, and, and resonance. You've clearly developed a beautiful friendship. And what is interesting, as you mentioned there, Rupert, is that where you have arrived in your understanding of reality, your lived experience of it, and that it's come from these two very apparently different directions. You could say, for example, Rupert, that I think a lot of people would think of you as in spiritual terms. And Bernardo, your background was certainly initially very much hard science. I mean, you worked at CERN at the uh, Haldron Collider. So actually, could you just give us a bit of a backdrop of your scientific credentials, if you may? Okay, my original education was in computer science, but I very quickly, immediately after my graduation, found myself working in a large physics experiment, uh, doing part of the data acquisition system for the Atlas experiment of the Large Hadron Collider at CERN in Switzerland. Started thinking about uh, artificial intelligence because it was one of the techniques we were working on in order to recognize relevant physics events from the data stream and, and separating those events from the sort of the trash, <laughs> the background uh, uh, that any physics experiment uh, generates. After that, I started thinking about, well, if I can build an AI, can I build uh, an AC, an artificial, artificially conscious entity? And then that got me back to philosophy, which was something I was interested on, I don't know, since birth. I don't remember not being interest, interested in philosophy. And then got a second doctorate in philosophy, started thinking about the deep questions, especially when you get to a point in life where you already carved out a space in the world for you. So you're not in that desperate need for 
having a place to live and uh, having a good job and a partner <laughs> and a dog and a cat and all that. And then suddenly I find myself here uh, next to Rupert, which is for me a, a massive cosmic irony. It's like God looking at me, having a laugh and saying, ha you didn't see this one coming, did you? <laughs> because I never thought of myself as even remotely spiritually talented, uh, so to say. I still don't think myself that way. I still think it's deep inside. I still feel slightly ashamed for being next to Rupert in a situation like this. Having a dinner with Rupert is something else. That's a situation in which I'm in learning mode. But to appear as an equal next to Rupert is a massive cosmic irony for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's peaceful. Um, well, now I just have something quickly, Simon, to that is, is that um, what's also ironical is that um, you say, Bernardo, that you don't really feel that you're spiritual or qualified in, in that way. But but I don't feel myself that I'm a, a spiritual person. I dislike intensely the label spiritual teacher because the word spiritual implies something sort of something other. Yeah. I'm talking about not something other about I'm talking about this yeah, yeah this ordinary everyday experience so i'd rather agree with you bernardo i don't feel spiritual i just feel like an ordinary person that's interested in the reality of our ordinary everyday experience then we share that i'm also interested in this world right now and that's why this is so exciting because spiritual is something of a loaded word particularly let's say in scientific circles so to be able to bring the two together, really, in, just in terms of pure experience, is very exciting. Now, um, just in terms of my own qualifications, as it were, I'm uniquely unqualified. I failed my physics GCSE, which means that so to be able to explore these terms, particularly perhaps from a scientific point of view, I'm hoping to bring you down to my level. Now, in terms of the man in, or woman in the street and their understanding of reality of experience of science someone at the moment here in britain who is very much the figurehead in that area is brian cox now he you could say he's a celebrity physicist he worked um, at cern as well in terms of for example the amount of publications you've had written about idealism in scientific papers how would you compare you and brian and I'm, i don't mean to be in any way leading but just out of interest well brian worked at cern as well at some point uh, i think um, i don't have much sympathy for him even in his efforts to communicate physics i think he's more focused on drawing a flabbergasted reaction from his public than to actually explain what's going on so more focused on the whoa wow what is this what does quantum physics mean than actually explaining uh, things and he seems to be married to a particular metaphysics without even thinking of it as a metaphysics. And mm. that metaphysics is, of course, physicalism or materialism. And metaphysics, that just means reality. Yeah, and... metaphysics is what is behind physics. Physics right. is how nature behaves. Metaphysics is what is it that behaves? So it's behind the physics or beyond the physics. So am I right in saying science doesn't tell us what reality is, but it tells us how it behaves? Correct. Uh, of course, you can derive some implications regarding what nature is from nature's behavior. 
but that's an indirect step. Science doesn't provide a direct answer to what nature is, since it only studies nature's behavior. Now, Rupert, in terms of then the perennial understanding, as it were, does this then explain what reality is in a way that science can't? Yes, the perennial understanding is really more a, a philosophy than a science, because philosophy is more concerned with what nature is rather than, than what it does. So the perennial non-dual understanding is an attempt to both explore the nature of reality, to recognize the nature of reality, and then it addresses the implications of that recognition in our life, both internally, that is what it means for us internally in relation to our suffering, our love of happiness and peace, our internal um, emotional experience. But it also has implications for our external experience, that is our activities and relationships in the world. You often say reality is one single indivisible whole. And so there's nothing separate from that. It's also described as the consciousness only model, non-duality, idealism. So where you've both arrived at is, am I right saying it's exactly the same spot? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is, you'd have to put Bernardo and, and my understanding under a, a very powerful microscope to find any differences between us. <laughs> Okay, well, that's a fantastic place to start. So let's then begin with a bit of a dismantling process in terms of the way that culture at large believes what reality is. That brings us obviously to materialism or physicalism and also our intuitions about reality. So for me right now, I feel like there is a world out there. I can see out the window. There are cars, there are houses, there are pavement. There's sky, it's cloudy. I, in the form of a body, would walk out of the door. Inside that body, there is a mind <laughs> and uh, a self that is deciding to walk down the road and perhaps get in a car or go to the shop or whatever. So it's a world of things, and I am a thing within that that just happens to have a mind within it. That seems to me to be the sort of the everyday understanding of reality. That's the average everyday understanding, yeah. But it's wrong. It's certainly wrong. Could you just explain, Bernardo, actually, just to start, how our intuitions then mislead us? Nature has provided us with a set of sense organs, sensors, eyes, ears, nose. And the result of this sensing of the world is presented to us as what we call perception. But if you think of it, perception is like just a dashboard of instruments. It's like you're a pilot in an airplane, and instead of having a transparent uh, windshield, uh, there is only aluminum, and all you can see, uh, aluminum, and all you can see uh, is the dashboard of instruments in, in front of you, which provide us with sense data. There are sensors outside the, the airplane providing you with sense data, accurate information about the world. But of course, the dashboard doesn't look like the world. It provides relevant and accurate uh, sense data about the world, but it doesn't look like the world as it is in itself. The problem is we are born inside that cockpit. We have never peeked out a transparent window to see the world as it actually is. All we have is the dashboard. 
So we talk in terms of the language of the dashboard. We don't talk about the storm outside. We talk in terms of wind speed, uh, direction of movement, air pressure, which is what the dashboards of instruments provide us. And we end up concluding that the world is the dashboard because that's all we ever had. Our language evolved around that. Our thinking evolved around that. Uh, but of course, although the dashboard is useful, you can fly by instrument and we need the, 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 the sensors and, and, the, and the dials in the dashboard to navigate life and, and survive. Obviously, the world as it is in itself is not a dashboard. It doesn't look like a dashboard. Um, and that's where uh, things go wrong because we are cooped up in that cockpit. We think in terms of the dials and we forget that the real world is that which is being sensed that which is being measured and not the needles inside the dials inside your dashboard of instruments. Rupert, Bernardo mentioned our perceptions. So when I go outside and I see cars, houses, people, actually what I'm seeing is the perception of seeing, the perception of hearing, perception of feeling, etc. So can you just talk a little bit about that, about how that is what we're seeing but superimposed on top of that is the idea of things. Yes, there is experience. We're having an experience or we are experiencing. And that we extrapolate from this fact a model, which as you rightly described, in your introduction to this question, the, the, the model of a, of, of a mind or a self inside the body, looking out through our sense perceptions of what we consider to be, uh, we consider our sense perceptions to be a, a transparent windscreen through which we look and get an accurate picture of reality. Whereas as Bernardo has just explained, no, our sense perceptions are, are limited. They, they filter reality and they they make reality appear in a way that is consistent with their own limitations just like one who wears orange tinted glasses sees orange snow and well if you wear orange tinted glasses when you're skiing in the mountains for long enough you forget you've got the glasses on and you think that the way you're seeing the snow is the way it really is. and then at the end of the day you take your glasses off and you think oh i had forgotten that i was receiving i, I was viewing a, a filtered picture of the reality that the glasses are so close to me that I had forgotten them and that I thought that I was just looking through the clear windscreen of, of, of my eyes. Because our sense perceptions, as, as Bernard said, that they're so close to us, we, we've forgotten that we are, so to speak, wearing them like glasses or like a VR headset. And we presume the model of reality that, that they present to us is how reality actually is. No, it's just how reality appears when it's filtered through the limitations of a human mind. You mentioned the senses and obviously, so we've got seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. So these five sensory organs. So we have five ways of experiencing, should we say. And then we also have the equivalent number of, of organs to help us in that. Is the, the coincidental nature of that in anything worth commenting yes, on? Absolutely. You're right. As human beings, we, we, we experience seeing, hearing, touching, tasting and smelling. And we experience the world in the form of sights, sounds, tastes, textures and smells. Well, is that a coincidence? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> There's a direct correlation. Let, 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 let's say we had a, a, 
a, a sixth well we have a sixth um sense that thinking but let's say there was a, there was a, let's just talk about perception let's say there was a, a sixth way of per perceiving seeing hearing touching tasting and smelling and let's call it xing let's say there was some experience called xing we would experience x's out there yeah. or if there was something called y-ing we would experience y's out there and then we would say, that's how and, the world really is. That's the that, wise out yes. there. <laughs> in, in other words, the world is not what we see. It is the way we see. And, and Bernardo and I both, we both make this point over and over again to prevent this understanding from sliding into um, solipsism. I'm not saying, I know Bernardo is not saying that all there is to reality is our individual experience of it. Reality precedes the finite mind or its observation. But the finite mind filters reality and makes it appear to us in a way that is consistent with uh, the limitations of our sense faculties. It's what William Wordsworth beautifully said when he said, we half create and half perceive the world. We perceive it in the sense that what we're looking at is what's real. It's the, the reality that precedes the human mind, the, the mind. But we create it in the sense that we lend it its appearance. And this beautiful understanding that the world as we experience it, it's an interaction between reality and the finite mind. The world borrows its realities from something that is way bigger than the finite mind, but it borrows its appearance from the finite mind. I'll come back to that solipsism point uh, very soon. But quickly, Bernardo, can you just explain? So why then do we have the perceptions appear as they do? do why do they not more accurately reflect reality perceptions may be fairly accurate in the same sense that a dial in the dashboard of instruments of an airplane uh, provides accurate information about what's going on outside information that you can react to and fly safely by instruments but that of course doesn't mean that the world outside looks like a dashboard and and that's the key difference the world outside may not be, and I'm highly convinced it's not because there's plenty of evidence for it, uh, the world outside may not be material in the way we think of it. Discrete objects in a space-time scaffolding, that's the paradigm of the dashboard. It's accurate in the sense that it allows us to survive, allows us to react timely to environmental challenges by presenting uh, what's relevant <clears throat> about the world at a glance to us on the screen of perception. Uh, it helps us avoid unlimited increases of entropy in our internal states. Now, this is complicated. It only means the following. If we saw the world as it actually is, in other words, if our perception mirrors the world as it actually is, then our internal states would be as unbound as the states of the world, uh, which we have no control of. And that means that uh, seeing alone could kill you. It could increase your, uh, the dispersion of your internal states to the point that you would melt into hot soup. And that's thermodynamics for you. So it has been shown mathematically already by a person from the UK that perception cannot mirror the world. We would die very quickly if it did that. Perception is an encoded at a glance overview of what is salient and relevant about the world, but it may look like Nothing. It may, may look nothing like the world actually is, although it conveys accurate information about the world. 
So that's the critical difference. The information is accurate, but it's presented in a way that is not the same as the world is in and of itself. It could not be the same. Can I add something to that? Sure. Um, really just to reiterate um, what Bernardo is saying, just the fact that we perceive the world from one localized point of view implies that our view of it must be limited because to get an accurate view of reality, we would have to perceive it simultaneously from all possible points of view, or we would perceive then is that utter blackness. But just, just the fact that we that, that <coughs> perception always takes place from a localized point, point of view, well, what is perceived is always relative to that point of view. It can always only be a, a limitation of what is really there. So perception by definition is limited and, and inaccurate, which doesn't mean I'm not invalidating it, it, it has a purpose, as, as Bernardo said, but it, it must give us an inaccurate picture of reality. Uh, something I've heard that you say, Bernardo, that made a bit of sense to me was the idea of, for example, a computer game. You're playing a computer game. Let's say you're moving your character around and he can go through a world. But if you saw the actual world of the computer game, it would be all these ones and zeros and it would just be absolutely nonsensical. So it, there's, there's an equivalence there. We have evolved in order to generate a representation of the world that is conducive to our survival, not necessarily one that reflects the truth of how the world is in and of itself. That's not amenable to survival. So yeah, there, there, there is a difference between accuracy and truthfulness. We perceive largely accurately, but not in a truthful way in the sense that the appearances are not the world. They, why would they be? <laughs> there is absolutely no reason for them to be. So take reality seriously, but not literally. Um, Correct. Rupert, just to go back to that solipsism point, and I found this quite interesting while doing a bit of research for this is how it can be easily misunderstood. So solipsism, correct me if I'm wrong, is the, un the belief that that nothing exists outside of our finite mind, even outside of my own finite mind. And some people believe, and I've seen this on threads, it's actually quite common, that, for example, idealism is in line with that. But actually, it's the other way around. Materialism is more in line with that than non-duality. Rupert, can you field this one? Yes. The belief that idealism is uh, synonymous with solipsism is at best a, a misunderstanding of what idealism entails and, and at worst, and as you say, is very common nowadays, a complete misrepresentation of idealism. And it's pernicious because many people who would genuinely be open to the possibility of idealism dismiss it on the grounds of its association with solipsism, which is it's a philosophy that, that doesn't even get off the ground. Solipsism, as you say, it's the, it's the belief that all there is to reality not, is not the content of our individual minds. It's the content of my mind. All I can be sure about is the content of my own mind. Therefore, you two, for instance, you, you are just images on my screen. You are not having experience now. All, all there is in existence is my study in Oxford. There's nothing even, there's no house, there's no other, no other beings. It's, it's a form of madness. And it's remarkable how often in the circles that I operate in, perhaps more than Bernardo, although there's quite a lot of overlap, more and more so these days, but 
it's remarkable how many people misunderstand idealism or the non-dual philosophy and equate it with uh, solipsism and in this way bring it into disrepute what what um idealism really means or what the non-dual perennial non-dual understanding suggests is not that reality is contained in an individual mind or even the sum total of all individual minds it suggests that reality takes place in a universal consciousness and is ultimately made of that or is the activity of that universal consciousness so non-duality or, or idealism everything states that everything is in consciousness not everything is in the finite mind there's a big difference the best metaphor for me is the dream metaphor could you just yeah. illustrate it with that at this point it, yes it's it's the it's it's the the analogy that i use most often it's it's my equivalent to bernardo's dissociation identity disorder yes imagine mary falls asleep in london she dreams she's jane on the streets of paris now some people object when i say this because they say well i'm the same person in my dream than I am in real life. Why do you give them two different names? Only for ease of communication. So just so that I can communicate easily. So Mary falls asleep in London. She dreams she's Jane on the streets of Paris. And then now from Jane's point of view, Jane represents the finite mind. That is each of us, all, all of us are like Janes in the dream or the imagination of a universal consciousness. Now from Jane's point of view, she closes her eyes, the streets of Paris disappear. She opens them again, they reappear. And she reasonably concludes from this that whatever it is that is perceiving the streets of Paris lives just behind her eyes. And this is corroborated when she closes her ears, etc. And everybody else on the streets of Paris, all her friends, think the same thing. And from this, they build this model that whatever it is that knows my experience lives in my brain. And everything that I experience externally, the world, is outside this, the consciousness that I believe is located in my brain. And the, the name we give to that is matter. So from Jane's point of view, her experience is divided into mind on the inside, which in this context, we can use synonymously with, con with consciousness. In other contexts, I would make a distinction. But in this context, we can say Jane's experience is, is divided to, into consciousness on the inside and matter on the outside. Moreover, she then, uh, um, I don't have to elaborate the whole analogy. She believes that the, the world made out of matter precedes the consciousness with which she experiences it. So she believes, along with all her friends and colleagues, that the that, that matter which exists outside of her mind gives rise to consciousness. Hence, the materialistic model grows out of this point of view. Of course, when Mary wakes up, she thinks, oh, no, that's just how it appeared from Jane's limited localized and ultimately illusory point of view what was really taking place was that the the single indivisible field of my own mind consciousness albeit a limited consciousness was within itself it was assuming simultaneously the form of the the dream and the form of the the subject in the dream from whose perspective the dream was was known so that the, the distinction between mind and matter, between the subject and the object, was only real from the localized perspective of Jane in the dream. But when Mary wakes up, it's the whole thing is one infinite, indivisible whole made out of pure consciousness.
So the dreams that we have at night are just a microcosm of reality exactly. at large. All we need to do is, is take the analogy I'd given and just raise it one level up. That in the waking state, we are all Jane's localized perspectives of infinite consciousness within infinite consciousness, from whose point of view infinite consciousness perceives itself, its own activity as an apparently physical universe. Lovely. Now, Bernardo, would you mind, uh, before we get the dissociated uh, alters, I want to come to later because the research was fascinating, but could you just share your analogy around another beautiful one, the sort of infinite river with whirlpools within it, which is another way of saying the same thing? Um, the motivation for that was a model that some people use, the, the, the transceiver model of the brain, that the brain doesn't generate consciousness, it just receives it. The problem is that there is a built-in dualism to that. You know, if you have a coffee filter, the filter is not made of coffee. So if the brain is a filter, then filtering consciousness, then presumably the brain is not made of consciousness. Uh, but that, I think, would be a, a, a wrong conclusion. As Rupert just beautifully explained, everything is in consciousness and of consciousness. So what's actually going on? So the analogy of the whirlpool is, is an attempt to solve this seeming dilemma um, if you go to a river and you find a whirlpool, you can delineate the boundaries that whirlpool, whirlpool precisely and say the whirlpool is here and not there. And these are the boundaries of the whirlpool. It, it has an obvious individuality to it, an obvious localization to it. The water in the whirlpool keeps turning around the same point, the same center, while the rest of the river flows uh, uh, away. So the idea is that... Um, our brain and its brain activity, the rest of our body, it's not generating consciousness. It's the image of a certain localization of the stream of consciousness in the same way that the whirlpool is the image of a certain localization of water uh, in a flowing stream. And brain activity correlates with experience because it's the image thereof. The image of a phenomenon, of course, correlates with the phenomenon it's an image of. The body doesn't generate consciousness. It's just what the localization of consciousness looks like from the outside. And you can delineate the boundaries of the body and say, here is the body, in the same way that you can delineate the boundaries of the whirlpool and say, here is the whirlpool. Yet, just like there is nothing to the whirlpool but water, you can't lift the whirlpool out of the river. There's nothing to it but the same water as the river. There is only the river. Uh, in the same way, there is nothing to the body but consciousness. It's just the image of a certain localization of conscious contents. Before I go on to solipsism and how it's actually closer to physicalism and materialism, can you just define in the simplest terms you can what consciousness is, Rupert? Consciousness is that with which our experience is known. It is that within which everything appears and it is that out of which everything is made or of which everything is the activity that was nice and concise bernardo yeah it's difficult to add something to that um maybe another formulation consciousness is that whose excitations are experiences um if you mean by define consciousness if you mean by it how i use the word then i use the word in the sense of phenomenal consciousness 
without entailing or requiring any higher level mental functions, such as self-awareness, metacognition, and so forth. So if you have experience, then you're conscious. Even the simplest experiences already imply consciousness. Technically, this is called phenomenal consciousness. And that's what I mean when I use the word consciousness. Now, um, if you mean by it, uh, give me a way to explain consciousness in terms of something else, then I draw a blank because I think consciousness is primary. I can explain everything else in terms of consciousness, but not consciousness in terms of something else, because you cannot reduce one thing to another forever. At some point, you hit rock bottom in reality. Um, and I think consciousness is that rock bottom. Mm -hmm. So there is nothing I can explain consciousness in terms of. So that's why I prefer to say consciousness is simply that whose excitations are experiences. So it's experience experiencing. Uh, our language and our way of thinking sort of tries to say what consciousness is as if it were a thing that you could point to and say, there, there is consciousness. Here it is. It's a thing of some sort. And, and of course, that's contradictory with consciousness. Consciousness is that within which things appear. It's not itself a thing. It's not itself a substance in the literal sense. Consciousness is pure subjectivity. If you need to think in terms of things, whatever you do there, it will be wrong. But uh, what is the least wrong way to think of consciousness in terms of a thing Think of it as empty space. It's still completely wrong, but it's less wrong than to think of it in terms of an object or, or, or a substance. Think of consciousness as empty space and experiences as excitations of that empty space, which creates, creates the world. You mentioned things, which brings us neatly to physicalism slash materialism. And so, as I said, I came across a few comments on various forums that dismissed sort of the non-dual idealism understanding in terms of this solipsistic outlook. But actually, materialism, so the, the current model of reality has more in common with solipsism than idealism, than non-duality, because the implication is everything we experience is taking place in our brain, in our mind. So can you just explain that in the simple, simplest terms possible? Under materialism, the qualities of your perceptual experiences, all the colors you see, the sounds you hear, the smells you taste, the textures you touch and feel, all these qualities are generated by your brain inside your skull. Um, if you look up to the sky at night and you see a bright star, say Sirius, that quality, that star you see, that thing you perceive, all those qualities, all of that perception is happening inside your skull so your real skull skull under materialism is above the stars as you see them now materialism would say there are real stars out there but they are not what you see they have no qualities they are pure abstraction uh, you cannot visualize them because if you visualize it you're already bringing qualities into the picture and under materialism qualities are created by your brain inside your head so under materialism the world of your experiences is entirely within your real head. Bernardo, can and I just course, ask, just, just quickly, when you just, could you just elaborate a tiny bit on qualities, what you mean by that? Colors are qualities, melodies are qualities, flavors are qualities. Um, the world, as it is in itself, 
under materialism has no qualities. It has no colors, has no tastes, has no, no smells. It has matter. And what is matter? It's something entirely defined in terms of quantities, of numbers. Uh, it's an abstraction. You cannot visualize it. But theoretically, if you provide a long enough list with the relevant numbers, you will have said everything there is to be said about matter as defined under materialism. It has no qualities. Under materialism, all qualities are somehow, nobody has any clue how, not even in principle, somehow generated by your brain inside your head. Can um, I ask you a question, Bernardo? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking you a question. Um, I know it's not what, what you believe, but if I were asking a materialist, someone that, that has this view that, that, that you've just um, given, that, that uh, all, all of them, that the world really exists inside our head. So what about the head itself? Surely if the world exists inside the brain, inside the head, then the brain and the head must exist in... <laughs> the argument yeah. falls apart there. A materialist would say, um, the head you see in the mirror is not your head. It's an internal representation of your real head created by your brain. And what about the brain then? Uh, the brain you see if you crack my skull open is not my real brain. It's an internal representation of my real brain created by your brain inside your real skull. The real brain, the real skull under materialism have no qualities. They have no color, no qualities whatsoever. They are pure abstraction. They are defined in terms of a list of numbers and mathematical relationships between these numbers, like spatial temporal position, mass, charge, spin, momentum, frequency, amplitude, and all that. So most casual materialists don't know this, <laughs> because if they knew, they would say, this is absolute nonsense. I mean, I'm replacing reality with an abstraction, which happens to also not work because there is no coherent and explicit way to, to, to tell how quantities can generate qualities. It's an absurdity. It's an inversion of reasoning, uh, so to say. Rupert, can you just then, I've heard you dismantle it in very simple terms, the, the material model. So I'm going to challenge you to do that again. And I know that, you know, you're not going to be pulling something from memory, but I've seen you do it in a couple of sentences before. So I'm going to challenge you to try and do that again, if you could. Not sure I'll manage two sentences, Simon, but I'll do my <laughs> best. The only thing we can be certain of is the knowing of experience. And in fact, not even the knowing of experience, as if the knowing of it were one thing and experience itself were something other than knowing. All we can be certain of is knowing. That's the only absolute certainty. I'm using knowing synonymous with consciousness, but I use the word knowing to try and bring it close to our experience. There is the, the knowing of the sound of my voice, the knowing of the sight of your screen, the knowing of the temperature of the air on your face, the knowing of whatever emotion you may be experiencing. There's just the knowing of experience. Knowing is the only substance that is ever known or experienced. So anything that we posit outside of knowing is a, 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 um, an abstraction, a mental abstraction that can never be verified. Because if we were to come in contact with it, all that we would know of it is the knowing of it. 
So knowing is the only certainty. It's the only thing, which is, of course, not a thing that has ever been experienced or could ever be experienced by anybody. I'm, I'm implying that knowing is known by a person. I don't mean that. Knowing is that which knows. So this knowing is, is known by itself. That's all we can be sure of. So if we want to build a model of reality that is anything other than or could ever be anything other than a mental abstraction unrelated to our experience, why don't we start with what we know, with what we have in our hands, knowing, consciousness, and only resort to something outside of that if our current experience cannot be satisfactorily explained using only consciousness, which it can, not only can our current experience be explained very satisfactorily, referring only to knowing or consciousness. There are so many aspects of our current experience that cannot be satisfactorily explained under the prevailing materialist paradigm. I think that's that, that that's a, a, a <laughs> that, yes. The best known of which, of course, is the hard problem of consciousness. And um, I believe it was David Chalmers, who I believe also, you know, Bernardo, who came up with that. So could you just give a quick brief explanation of actually what that is in simple terms and why it's not just a hard problem. It's a completely unsolvable problem under the current paradigm. Um, Dave framed the problem uh, as follows. There is nothing about physical parameters in terms of which we could deduce, even in principle, the qualities of experience. In other words, the gap between the qualities that are nature's given, our experiences, our qualitative experience, that's pre-theoretical. It's what is given to us. It's how the whole thing starts. There is nothing about what we call physical parameters in terms of which we could deduce experience. So whatever brain arrangement you come up with, whatever pattern of brain activity you come up with, it may cor correspond to the quality of warmth or to the quality of coldness. But th th there is nothing in terms of those physical, nothing about those physical parameters in terms of which we could deduce this is a hot experience or this is the experience of coldness. It it's a completely arbitrary gap between the two. And, and, and Dave formulated this very precisely in 94. Uh, he puts himself down. He says, well, no, I didn't do anything. People already knew that. I just chose certain words. But of course, framing the problem is halfway to, to the solution. And the solution in this case is to take a couple of steps back because we took a wrong turn at some point. We need to take retrace our steps back and, 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 and try a different understanding of what's going on, because what the heart problem shows is that there is an internal contradiction in the materialist way of thinking. And there is no way to solve that in the sense that we can continue in the materialist path and account for experience in terms of quantities that's incoherent already in principle, let alone uh, in practice. We have to trace our steps back and, and try a different road. So the one thing we know for sure is experience, and it comes from something that is outside of experience, namely matter, with no reason why 
experience should rise from matter. So why has this leap been made that there's these things, stuff, and then bang, out of nowhere comes experience? Look, if you were born inside of the airplane cockpit and all you have, all you have ever had are the dials, your language evolves around the paradigm of the dials. And you try to make sense of everything in terms of dials. <laughs> uh, and that's what we are doing. And it's a little bit clueless, but it's understandable. Uh, it's wrong, but it's understandable to some extent. Um, our brain activity seems highly correlated with our experiences. If I put alcohol in my system, something changes in my experience. If a neurosurgeon goes around my brain poking it with an electromagnetic probe, he will induce all kinds of experiences in me. Uh, well, we don't need to go that far. If I'm punched in the head, <laughs> something happens to my experience. So we have all these correlations between experience and what we call physicality. So the easy intuition is, well, experience arises from physicality. Of course, there is a completely different way to see this. And once you get that, it's obvious that that other way is the way to go. But uh, I understand the common superficial intuition that the arrow of causation goes from matter to consciousness because there is such tight correlation between patterns of brain activity and even anatomy and the contents of our inner experience. Just something I want to add. So Rupert, you talk often about the, the perennial understanding. So this is, this is not new. This is thousands of years old. <clears throat> Yet physicalism, materialism, the current model, is actually relatively new, is it not? And uh, Bernardo, can you just explain a little bit from a historical point of view, the role the church and scientists <laughs> who didn't want to be burned at the stake played in, in the development of that? Okay, in the, in the 16th century, early 17th century, in the beginning of science, uh, scientists realized that it was very handy to describe the qualities of, of, of perception in terms of numbers. Like, um, you know, if you assign a number of kilos to a piece of luggage, it's a nice description of how it feels to lift that piece of luggage. Um, so numbers arise as descriptions of the universe of perceptions. And at some point in the fight between science and the church, because, you know, the church started burning some scientists, like they burned Bruno at the stake in 1600, it became convenient, socio-politically speaking, to try to carve out a space for science that left the church feeling unthreatened. So, and, and Descartes was instrumental in that. So the, the, the story that they come up, came up with was the following. Instead of these numbers being descriptions, let's make them a thing in themselves. Let's make them a reality. Let's say it's matter. So the numbers became not only a description, now they were a thing in themselves called matter. And that was the domain of science. And everything that had to do with qualities and consciousness, in other words, all we have... Uh, okay, that's the domain of the church. And of course, the church leaders probably thought, yeah, okay, then go, ahead, go ahead in your fool's errand. And we are happy if you leave the psyche, you know, the soul, the mind, the qualities, the consciousness to us, because we know that's all that exists. Um, in the beginning, the people of the Enlightenment, later in this game, in the 18th century, 
they were still aware that this was a political move, so scientists wouldn't be burned at the stake. Uh, Didier Rowe, one of the two authors of La Encyclopédie, one of well, perhaps the founding document of the Enlightenment, he's on record saying, well, materialism doesn't quite work, but we need it in order to fight the church. So that awareness was still there, that this was not a philosophy motivated by reason, uh, this was largely motivated by short thinking and politics, you know, important politics if you are afraid for your life. But at some point in the 19th century, halfway in the 19th century, we've lost the notion that uh, this was a political move. Um, and we started thinking, this is really what's going on. There are only quantities. So that was the moment when we replaced the territory with the map. And then we started trying to pull the territory out of the map. That's the hard problem of consciousness. It doesn't work. You can't pull the territory out of the map. You can't pull the world out of what was a description of the world. But instead of acknowledging that uh, we are totally off on a tangent here, we say it's a problem. And in version 2, 3, or 10 of the map, we will be able to pull the territory out of the map. Well, <laughs> go ahead, try <laughs> Pull a chair while you wait. <laughs> uh, Rupert, I'm going to give you um, two questions and take your pick. Could, do you either want to say something about the pulling the territory out of the map, that sort of analogy, or the fact that this habit has continued over the last few centuries and perhaps why, in your opinion, this model has continued and just been passed down, passed down without much introspection? I think it's a, it, it's con, it continued, it's been perpetuated uh, simply because it seems to be consistent with the way we perceive. Uh, as Einstein said, uh, our um, common sense, the evidence of our common sense perceptions are a series of prejudices that most people acquire by the age of 18. It, it, it's, it's just... Um, Jane on the streets of Paris, everything about her experience, uh, everything about her friends and her colleagues' experience seemed to corroborate this belief that her experience is generated by matter. Uh, going back to Bernardo's analogy of being punched in the face, someone comes up to Jane, this is the, I'm going back to my dream analogy, someone slaps Jane on the face, she, her internal experience correlates with that, she feels pain. What, what, what caused the, the actual experience, the knowing of her experience, it was a physical hand on her physical face. And it, it seems that, that most of her experience seems to be explicable by this paradigm. It seems to hold up until you start questioning it. Now, what is it that causes most people to question it? Suffering. If we didn't suffer, there would be no reason to question our view of the world. On the contrary, we would think the happiness I experience is a confirmation that my view of the world is correct. We would never question anything. And that's why so many people are first open to the possibility that we are discussing here through the experience of suffering. Their life falls apart. They realize something's not working. And it's not just today that it's not working. It gets worse the older you get, 
as Henri David Thoreau said, most people lead lives of quiet desperation. You get halfway through your life, and you 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 you, you re- it's not working. Relationships, um, activities. You 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 you've experienced enough suffering to no longer be able to keep it at bay through objects, substances, activities, relationship. You've been failed by life sufficiently often to probe a little bit deeper. Could there be something about my attitude that is responsible? Might I have got something wrong? And for most of us, it's suffering that that opens this door. For for me, it was. Although I had this this very early intuition, Aged seven, that, that that everything is a dream in God's mind, that that, and then I forgot that intuition as I, I grew up. It was suffering that reignited my interest in these matters. Uh, um, in, in fact, in my case, it was it was a, a very particular experience when um, the girlfriend I was with, my first girlfriend, uh, with whom I thought I would get married and have four children and live happily ever after. Um, it, it ended our three-year relationship in a two-minute phone call. And, and for the first time in my life, I, I became aware of the extent to which I had invested the thing that I loved the most, namely happiness, in objective experience. It, this cracked my world. My world had already been cracked by my parents' divorce. and very, But, but this, was, this was a crack that I could no longer plaster over. Am I going to spend the rest of my life investing the thing that I love most in life, which is peace or joy, in something which is inherently unstable. This brought urgency to what had then, I was already interested in these matters, but it became a passion. I want that there's something must be wrong about my model of reality. What is, what, what, what can I know for certain is true? And if I were to start there and hold on to that, and only lead a life that was consistent with that. What kind of a life would that be? So two things. Suffering first then can be very much a blessing, even though it's not perceived in that way. And then secondly, through your understanding of non-duality, of the nature of reality, and through choosing to live in accordance with it, and I know you say that it's a, it's a never-ending journey to what degree if your suffering was previously at 100 percent, where would you rate it now simon i'm reluctant to put a a a number on it but but let let, let me say this that when uh, the, the the suffering arises less and less frequently and it lasts for less and less time and fewer and fewer experiences have the power to provoke it. Now, I would never say that it never happens. I, I can be triggered in, in a situation and it can cr- create an emotional resistance in me. That's what, what suffering is, emotional resistance. But I notice that fewer experiences have that capacity. They have to be quite intense. So it happens less and less frequently. And when it does happen, when the experience of suffering is triggered, th- th- this understanding kicks in quite quickly. And I'm able to trace my way back to my essential being and its innate peace that lies behind, so to speak, the content of my experience. How about you, Bernardo? Um, this is the point where 
comparison between me and Rupert is, uh, look, Rupert radiates peace. There was this once I took him for a walk around some shady areas of Amsterdam. <laughs> um, he, he, he didn't lose his center. I'm not there. I don't radiate peace. Um, I still have my anxieties. What did happen for me, and, and I'm extraordinarily grateful uh, for that, because I think that's what makes all the difference, the banality, the meaninglessness um, that most people experience as their lives, that is completely gone mm. for me. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not in peace profound. I have my demons, have my anxieties, suffer suffer with things that there's nothing I can do about, some of them even physical in my own body. But I never have that notion that all this suffering is for nothing, that life is meaningless, that everything comes to a total end and it's all for nothing. Uh, that I don't have. My life is infused with meaning. In particular, the suffering is infused with meaning. Suffering is is a great drive. It's, it's what keeps us moving in the direction of depth. Otherwise, life would remain so shallow. We wouldn't be asking the, the deep questions. I feel compelled to say something here, and I've said it, Bernardo, to you before, but I, I, I want to, to say it again, that I think the fruit of this understanding is a peace on the inside, absence of suffering on the inside, and love on the outside. And when I say love, I don't just mean a, a, a warm, cozy feeling. I, when I use the word love, I mean the recognition that we share our being or, or our reality with everyone and everything. In other words, it is the felt sense of, of, of the understanding that we are speaking of here. So these two experiences are... are, are I would suggest the fruit of this understanding, peace on the inside, love or beauty, oneness on the outside. I have always felt with you, Bernardo, that you share this understanding profoundly, but that the fruit of it, at least on the inside, has been delayed in your case. Uh, why? Because as you've just said, suffering propels us to go deeper and deeper and deeper. It's the fuel for this investigation. And I think you have a, a unique role in the world to share this understanding in a way that nobody else can and, and in a field that nobody else can and rather than a way in a field, for instance, that I'm not qualified to speak in the, the world of science. And, and, and for this reason, I feel that the fruit of this understanding although I see, I, I see it in you more and more over the years, but I feel the fruit of this understanding is being withheld from you precisely to keep you motivated to do what you are supposed to be doing in the world. And I think as time goes on, I see it happening in you already. I think as time goes on, this piece will gradually emerge in your experience. And I don't in any, it's absence, I do not in any way consider to be a, a failure of your understanding. I think it's a necessary for you 
for you to be able to do what you are doing so beautifully in the world. Yes, but you've got work to do in the meantime, Bernardo. That's just an. Uh, that's just. <laughs> no, it, look, I mean this. What Rupert is saying, of course, instills hope uh, in me. But even if Rupert is wrong, and what I'm going to say now will seem like a contradiction, but there is a sense in which it's not a contradiction. I am in peace with my lack of peace. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yes. I don't double my suffering by not being in peace with the suffering. Because if you're suffering and then you tell yourself, but I should not yeah. be suffering, then you just multiply it by two. You just make it worse. No, I don't make it worse. I don't have that voice telling me I should not suffer. I am in peace with my suffering. It's part of nature. I'm aware life is sacrificial. Um, I mean, I'm opening a door here that is a rabbit hole, but I am okay with it. I do suffer, but I don't make it worse than it needs to be. Yeah, and you don't personalize it, Rupert. You're absolutely right, Bernardo. It would appear superficially to be a contradiction for what I'm saying, but it's not. It's, it's, a, it's another way of expressing beautifully what I'm saying. And this is, this is what is meant by Ananda in the Vedantic tradition. It's the it's the piece that lies behind the content of our experience. Whatever it's the piece that passes understanding, the piece that has nothing to do what with what is taking place. So that your suffering is in the foreground. It's the content of your experience. And most people's experience of suffering is that that takes up the full picture. But that there is this piece behind your suffering that enables you to say, "I am at peace with my suffering." And and I suspect the peace behind your suffering will will grow and will progressively outshine the suffering in the foreground that that's my intuition <laughs> and as you say e even if it doesn't in a way it it, it doesn't matter because our yeah. lives are, 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 the meaning of our lives is so much bigger than our own personal experience life is not about me life is not about any one of us right exactly it's sacrificial as you as you say yes now um, I had a conversation with a gentleman I know, and I explained in my own limited way the consciousness-only model. And his conclusion was that it was nihilistic, that if we don't have individuality, if there is just one, what is the point? And my argument against him was, well, look, I would suggest the current approach to life is you're born, you work, you die. That doesn't feel hugely meaningful. But I was wondering if you have a more sophisticated answer for that particular criticism. No one is, is denying individuality. Individuality flourishes as a result of this understanding. It is not diminished by individuality. I mean, the unique expression of each of our minds and bodies when it is liberated from the tyranny of materialism. The character flourishes. Just commenting briefly on, on nihilism. It's what Pasolini said about the purpose of his films. I'm trying to restore to reality its original sacred significance. This is not a diminishing of reality. It's an upgrading of reality. Yes, it, it's nihilistic in a very limited sense in, in that it denies the discrete, independently existing objects made out of matter that is the, the foundation of the materialist model. It denies, so it starts with a denial. Yes, no, that things don't exist in and of themselves. But that's, there's much more. That, that's just the preparation. There's much more to this understanding. 
the, the, to, to, to this. It's not just a denial of the reality of appearances. It, it, it is the penetration through appearances, the recognition of their reality. So it is, it is restoring to reality. It's, if I can use religious language, it, 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 it's sacred nature. It's universal nature. This gentleman you spoke to may have got this idea that this perennial non-dual understanding is nihilistic by listening to some contemporary expressions of this understanding on the non-dual scene that, that are nihilistic, that just deny that there is anything apart from this our current experience. Th th these are misrepresentations of this understanding and do lead to nihilistic conclusions. And then everybody on the internet, everybody says, oh, well, everybody's just saying the same thing and expressing the same understanding. No, that's not true. They're not. It, it all comes under the umbrella of non-duality. But if you look carefully, you have extreme opposite understandings purporting to be the same recognition. So this gentleman, I would suggest that uh, has um, either misunderstood what is being said or has been um, watching the wrong videos. Yeah. Uh, Bernardo, how has this understanding then infused your own life with meaning so that anyone listening could perhaps uh, absorb some of that? Just a quick comment before I get there. I think what Rupert just said is the most important thing of this entire event today, what he has just said. Um, look, it is imaginable that if suffering in your life has come to a point where it has become so completely unbearable that nihilism seems like paradise. It's a way out of that. There's no point in this whole thing. There's no point to the suffering. It's all for nothing anyway. So why worry? Uh, Milan Kundera called it the unbearable likeness uh, of being. And there is a character in his book, Dr. Tomas, who, who is sort of the embodiment of this likeness of being, of this this nihilism, which gives a certain lightness to what's going on. And, 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 and that can be alluring to some uh, people um, if they are desperate enough. Now, my own relationship with the core of my being and the world and other people and life in general is not nihilistic at all, much to the contrary. Uh, to, for me, materialism was highly uh, nihilistic. You know, there is only matter... Well, whatever insights you have come to a complete end when you die. Uh, so whatever you learn, whatever maturity you accumulate, it's all for nothing. Anyway, that's nihilistic. Today, I, am, I, I, I live the reality that um, there is tremendous meaning to whatever suffering I have because they are the conduits to insights. And these insights are eternal in the sense of being outside time. Life is what provides the universe with a perspective, a point of view on itself that it would otherwise not have. And therefore, life is pregnant with purpose and meaning. Um, the world of appearances is now a book to be read. It's the superficial image of a deeper truth. Uh, there is a, di a, a dimension of depth, meaning, and significance to the entire world that wasn't there before. Everything you are surrounded with now is a dance of symbols, <clears throat> symbols that point at something beyond themselves, that point 
to something fundamental to mind, the mind of the universe, to consciousness. And there is a point that this particular seemingly individual state uh, we are in right now in trying to make sense of this. I mean, this is the antithesis of nihilism. This is the universe pregnant with meaning. This is life pregnant with purpose. It, it, it is baffling that someone would equate this with nihilism. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. People often talk about purpose and the need for purpose and uh, how it provides happiness and it's correlated with longevity and all sorts of things. And I'm reminded of that Alan Watts quote about the purpose of life is just simply to be alive. And yet everyone sort of runs around in a blind panic feeling they need to achieve something beyond themselves. So under this model then, is just the simple fact of being alive purpose enough in itself? I would suggest not. Because if that were the case, everyone who is alive, and, and, and that is everyone, would feel fulfilled. Their purpose had been accomplished. That's not the case. Most people do not feel fulfilled. What is the overarching drive in most people's lives? To get rid of their suffering, which stated in the po positive means to find happiness, to be at peace. So I would say, I actually think we have two purposes. I don't think it's enough to simply say the purpose of life is to find happiness. I think that that is our primary motivation and it relates to our inner experience but i think there's a symmetrical purpose that relates to the way we live and act and relate in the world so i think we could say that the purpose on the inside is to to find peace to find happiness but our purpose on the outside is to express this understanding to live this understanding you know and communicate it to demonstrate it, to share it, to celebrate it in our activities and relationships. 
but the hunt for purpose as it's currently understood though might that not be a way of seeking to alleviate the unhappiness that is instigated by the sort of misunderstanding of of reality as it is sorry i haven't understood your question Sandy. so p- people talk about purpose or goals let's say when i find my purpose of i don't know whatever it may be um or, or i achieve a goal let's even say it's running a marathon i don't know whatever it may be then i will be happy that understanding of purpose and goals is that not that's just an a misunderstanding of the alleviating unhappiness. So, so if, if we, in that case, if we stated our purpose as uh, winning a marathon, that that would be a um, that would be a, a superficial purpose. If if you said to the person, if winning the marathon, if you could be guaranteed that winning the marathon would make you miserable, would you still train for it? They would say no. If you ask somebody what they want above all else, they say, I'm longing for an intimate relationship. And then they say, OK, I can give you an intimate relationship, but I guarantee it will make you miserable. Do you still want it? No way. In other words, it's not the intimate relationship, the million dollars, the two children, the beautiful house. The, it's not. We only want these things because we believe that the happiness and the peace, which is what we really want, will be derived from or provided by them. Bernardo, anything to add? I'm passionate about this point. I I think we go wrong when we imagine purpose to be something that we determine and define. Mm. When we sit down and make a bucket list or a list of things that we define as our personal goals, because those purposes are false purposes and they are ultimately not fulfilling. Um, once you realize those goals, you become cognizant that they, they were ghosts. You don't get the fulfillment that you were expecting from them. When you buy the big house, when you drive your Ferrari, when you have your trophy wife, these things turn out to be gaseous. Uh, you now you run your fingers through them. You can't grab hold of them. Um, so I think this kind of projected ego purposes are illusions that uh, will lead to disillusionment um, because they almost uh, their power resides in their not being achieved because then you project the true meaning the true purpose of nature you project it on them Um, and, and then they have luminosity they have that drive but once you achieve them you realize that was not it uh, that said I, I do have a teleological view of nature. The universe is dynamic. It's changing. It's, it's unfolding. It's evolving. And if all of that is the image of conscious processes, there seems to be a conscious impetus, impetus behind it. Otherwise, the universe would remain in whatever state it is, uh, because that would be good enough. So I think the key is when you realize that it's not about you, it's not about your little egoic goals, it's about surrendering to what nature wants to do through you, to what nature wants to manifest through you or learn through you. And this kind of purpose is not something that you can write down a piece of paper and say, I will have achieved this purpose by year X. It doesn't work like that. It's a continuous unfolding. Yeah. You don't know where, it, where it's going. You only know, if you develop the sensitivity for it, 
where nature wants to be next day with you, what you're supposed to do next. You don't have the global picture of a super plan. I don't think nature has it either. It's a game of warm and cold. You're getting warmer, oh, you're getting colder, you correct your, your, your path. But there is a richness, a bottomless richness of purpose when you surrender goals. Yes. So uh, if, 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 if you understand yeah, what I I'm do. trying to say. Could I summarize it thus? Ditch the five-year plan and learn to trust your intuition. Yes. Yes. Trusting your intuition, my own experience um, maybe distorts my view on this. But it's extraordinarily tricky to discern what your ego is surreptitiously trying to make you do out of its own narratives and views about what should happen, who you should be and you know, where you should go, uh, to discern that from the true impersonal whispers of nature. There, there are several clues for how to discern them. Usually the impersonal whispers of nature don't give a damn about what you, whether you're happy or not, uh, you know, whether, whether your ego will be satisfied or not, whether you get respect or not. It can be almost self-destructive from an egoic perspective. It doesn't give a damn about your safety. So this is one of the clues. There are other clues. So it's tricky to listen to your intuition because that can be a straightforward way to deceive yourself into you know, the, the, the knot of narratives of the ego expressing themselves in a more subtle way than, than just the five-year plan. But ultimately, I think if you get enough hard knocks in life, ultimately you come to a place where you learn to discern them. You know what is the impersonal whisper, what nature wants next through you. You don't really exist. You're just a part of nature. You, you, you're at best a tool. You're not even that because you're not individualized enough to, to even be a tool. But to surrender to nature's telos, it's so reaching purpose. And at the same time, it requires a complete abandon, abandonment of your goals, your personal goals, of your five-year plan, your New Year's resolutions, all of that. It's a total surrender to the now, to that subtle whisper which at first seems like to be a complete abandonment of any purpose, any goal, because you're, you're in the present. And goals and purposes seem to be future-oriented. So at first, it seems like everything became purposeless. But the next level of subtlety, when you get there, is it is pregnant with a kind of purpose that has nothing to do with personal goals. It is bursting full with that. It's the engine of everything. As uh, Dante said, it is the love that moves the sun and the other stars yeah. and can move you. In my experience, I feel like I've increasingly learning to tune into that. Perhaps I'm still getting confused with ego, but if I, to refine that, Rupert, what would you suggest? Whenever I'm faced with a decision, large or small, some kind of a choice, I briefly refer back to my deepest love and understanding, such as it is, I make the best attempt to make a decision or a choice that is consistent with and expressive of that love and understanding. And the more one does that, one's ability to do so becomes progressively refined by doing so. Yeah, yeah. that's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, I want to just go off on a bit of a 
sidetrack, backtrack, just a couple of short points before we then leap forward again. This may feel like we've slightly already trodden on them, but I just want to uh, get them done, as it were. Just to return briefly to physicalism, materialism, that model, Bernardo. Now, you talk about all the key enlightenment values that a whole held up to be important when any view of reality is considered coherence, simplicity, etc., etc. We haven't got time to to delve into all of them. Can you pick the strongest one in your view for why materialism does not tick the enlightenment box? Oh, explanatory power. It doesn't explain experience, which is all we have. So there is a sense in which it explains nothing. Internal consistency, by definition, it defines matter as that which has nothing to do with qualities. And then it tries to explain qualities in terms of matter. It, it's an internal inconsistency. I mean, I could, it could go on yeah. and on and on, but you asked for one, I gave you two. Uh, uh, and you did give it you two. And the fact that you laughed, I think, speaks. I mean, you do find it laughable once you've looked at it, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah. Materialism is the worst option on the table right now. It is... It is literally laughable. Okay. And the reason we don't laugh about it in the culture is that culture has manufactured plausibility for it. Okay. Now, just a quick word as well on the brain, just the whole, the view of it. Okay. So my experience of my brain and your experience of my brain, just because I think this is a key point. Would you mind just quickly again, explaining the brain from my point of view and from your point of view? The brain is what your conscious inner life, especially the metacognitive part, looks like when observed from the outside. Look, if you observe combustion from the outside, it looks like flames. It's the image of the phenomenon, and therefore it correlates with the phenomenon. But the image is not the cause. The image is an appearance. That's what the brain is. From my experience, there is no brain, because my experiences are experienced directly by me. Uh, I have a first-person perspective on my conscious inner life. But if you were a neuroscientist taking a fMRI scan of my brain, you would see certain patterns of brain activity. That's your view, your point of view on my experiences. In other words, that's what my direct experiences look like to you when you observe me from the outside. Perfect. Nice and simple. Right. That propels us forward into non-dualism and idealism. And Rupert, you talked about individual... Well, I mentioned individuality and you addressed it. Individuality, very much true. And even as you live this understanding more and more, perhaps even that flourishes and becomes even more rich in its own way, in its own form. But can you just distinguish then, you talk a lot about the separate self. Other people know it as the ego the thinker of our thoughts, however you want to define it. Can you just explain what the difference is between individuality, the mind, and the illusory separate self? Okay, individuality, the mind, and the separate self. Let's start with the mind, the finite mind. That is the collection of thinking, feeling, sensing, and perceiving that each of us feels ourselves to be. I would suggest that that is a, a localization of infinite consciousness within infinite consciousness from whose perspective or through whose agency it perceives its own activity as the universe so in fact there is no real entity called a finite mind a finite mind is not a bounded entity in 
reality. There are no bounded entities in reality. There is just one unlimited whole whose nature is consciousness. So just like a thought is not a bounded entity in your own mind, it is a process in your own mind that is not clearly defined. So each of our finite minds are not really bounded entities within the universal consciousness. It is a, let's just say, a cluster, a localization of thinking and perceiving. And as such, it is not problematic. It is simply the, the means through which the universe perceives itself in the form that we perceive it. So the finite mind is not synonymous with the sep- what is commonly referred to as the separate self or the ego. The separate self or the ego would be the belief that that finite mind defines who we are. Exactly. So they're two different things. The finite mind is just the impersonal functioning of thinking and perceiving that each of us feels we are from the inside. One such thought of this impersonal functioning of thinking and perceiving, one such instance of thinking is the belief, I am this discrete, independently existing entity. That's the ego or the separate self. And it is on behalf of that one that suffering arises on the inside, conflict arises on the outside, and by extension, the degradation and the exploitation of the earth. The individuality is present in both cases. In other words, the individuality can be used either in the service of um, ignorance or in service of truth. When I say ignorance, I don't mean that pejoratively. I, I mean the ignoring of the nature of reality. So individual can be informed by and an expression of the belief in the separate self. Such an individual brings uh, conflict, misunderstanding, and so on into the world. The same individuality can be used in the service of, of love and understanding. That would be the relationship between those, those three. As we go more deeply into this understanding, we could say that our individuality is liberated from the tyranny of the ego or of egoic thinking and flourishes as a result of this understanding. It is not diminished by it. For some people, the idea that their ego is illusory, that, for example, they are not the thinker of their thoughts, that thinker is just a thought amongst many, can be, in my experience, a little scary. Yet that would contrast with conflict on the outside and suffering on the inside why is there that tension can i can i um use the analogy of the moth and the flame the flame is the only thing the moth really wants and as long as the flame is at a distance the moth longs for it now it approaches the flame until it gets three inches away and then there is this recognition oh my god In order to achieve what I long for, I have to die. And it moves away from the flame again. But all it wants is the flame. So it comes back and it gets to within two inches of the flame. And then this fear again. In order to have what I want above all else, I must cease to be as a moth. I must become the flame. The flame, of course, is the happiness for which all people long. The moth is the separate self. All the separate self truly longs for is to bring its own illusory existence to an end. That's called happiness. That's why the separate self goes again and again and again towards happiness. But as you say, it pulls back at the last moment from surrendering into that 
for which it longs, because it realizes if I do this, not I will cease to be, on the contrary, I will be liberated from a limitation. But from the perspective of the separate self, the separate self feels I will cease to be. No, it won't cease to be. We just lose a limitation. And we, we don't become what we truly are, but we, are, we recognize what we truly are. So it only feels like a death from the point of view of the separate self or ego that this is a, 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 to be feared. That's why the separate self is always engaged, is ambivalent. The one thing it loves above all else, it fears above all else. Hence this dance we do until at some point we are so fed up with the dance, we are willing to go into the flame. Bernardo, can I ask you, I'm very familiar, I've followed Rupert's work for many years and very familiar with seeing through the separate self in his, the way he describes it. What's your take on the ego and how one can recognize its illusory nature? I am completely in agreement with Rupert that there is a difference between an individualization of consciousness and the ego. The, the narrative of a separate self. And it's, it's very important to be aware of this distinction to avoid the seemingly nihilistic implications of idealism and non-duality. The fact that the separate self does not exist does not entail or imply that there is no point to an individualization of consciousness. That is the key point. Now, how do you recognize the difference between the two I can only draw from my own experience over the years. It has become so straightforward for me now to picture myself in the shoes of other people, even animals sometimes. Like it's easy for me now, I, at least I imagine it, to put myself in the shoes of a cat. And I have cats. I've had cats all my life. I'm very familiar with felineness, if you know yes. what I mean. So... That ability to imagine yourself being someone else makes it so clear that what you are is just this, it's this pure subjectivity and everything else is ancillary. It's what happens to be happening within that subjectivity. How do I put in words uh, how you can make that differentiation. I, I think this is the best exercise. If you come to the point where you can truly feel yourself in the skin of someone else and yet recognize that I am still me, that's when you realize the distinction between the seeming separate self of, or a narrative, a story uh, uh, of the ego and an individual point of view. Because it's the same you in every individual point of view. Fundamentally, it's the same you. I have been so many people in my life. I have been a scientist, a philosopher, a business person, an entrepreneur, a husband. I have been so many people. And so many of them, I look back now and I think, that was not me at all. And yet, that was me. <laughs> the real thing behind all of them was me. So I think life, if you pay attention... If you remain sensitive on purpose, life brings you naturally to a point where you realize that all those things that you think are you, they have an uncanny tendency to fall off and be left behind along the way and you don't, you don't even notice. And yet you still keep telling yourself that 
these other things that uh, have grown around me right now and I still haven't allowed them to fall off, it's me. <laughs> and then 10 years on, they all fall off as well, but then you, others grow and you think that that's you. I mean, once you've been through this loop a few times, you realize that's just ancillary stuff. No, the, the real me is the pure subjectivity. And it's the same in you. And it's the same in my cat. And I can imagine me being both of them so easily. And then it becomes so bloody obvious <laughs> what you are and what you are not. Why isn't everybody realizing this? I don't know. It, it, it's, it, it's baffling. You mentioned what happens to be happening in subjectivity. And that would include all thoughts, all feelings, the story of me, our self-image, everything comes and goes. Rupert, how would you enable someone unfamiliar with this to really recognize that? Throughout our lives, we think and or, or, or feel, say, I'm five years old, I'm 15 years old, I'm 47, I'm 63, I'm studying at school, I'm falling in love, I'm eating dinner, I'm walking down the street, I'm having a conversation, I'm cold, I'm tired, I'm lonely, etc., 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 etc. I'm single, I'm married. Always the same I am, qualified temporarily by various ages, feelings, states, activities, and relationships. All of these are the temporary clothing, like Bernardo says, that, that they, are, they are the clothing that we wear. But there's one, there's one element of our experience that, that remains consistently present throughout all changing experience, just the awareness of being. I am. Now, if we take off, so to speak, all the layers of experience that are not essential to us, when we've taken off everything, when we've removed, we don't literally have to do it, but if we go to that place in our own experience that is unconditioned or unqualified by the content of our experience, that pure naked being, the pure I am before it is colored or qualified by experience, it is without agitation, hence its nature is peace. It, there is no sense of lack in it, hence it is what we call joy or happiness. And the more deeply we sink into it, the more it loses its apparent limitations, because it borrows its apparent limitations from the content of experience. Divested of the content of experience, it, so to speak, expands. It doesn't really expand because it is always fully expanded, but it seems to expand. It grows wider and wider. And at some point, it, 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 it's as if it flows out beyond the limitations of us as a person. And there is this, you, you describe it beautifully, Bernardo, when you say you, you have the ability to feel your own core subjectivity, your own being as the being of another. That's love. That's what love is, to be able to feel one's own being as the being of another. And it even goes beyond people and animals that that, that at some stage there is this, this recognition that, that the being, the isness from which everything derives its apparently independent existence is the same unqualified, unlimited being from which we derive our apparently independent existence. That's the experience of beauty, this identity with the object, that this recognition that the amnes of the self 
is the isness of things. Okay, I'm just going to ask you to do one of your quickfire answers, if if I may, Bernardo. Uh, so we've talked okay. about non-duality and idealism and the illusory separate self and the pure subjectivity, its nature being peace and well-being and that kind of thing. You gave some quick examples why materialism falls down as per post-enlightenment values. Can you just give a few <laughs> explanations as for why idealism doesn't? Um, okay. Um, idealism doesn't postulate a kind of existence different than nature's given, which is consciousness, experience. It admits that there is more than our individual experience, just like the earth continues beyond the horizon, but that more is of the same kind as individual experience. In other words, beyond the horizon, it's more earth, not something totally different from earthness. Beyond the individual mind is more mind, not something of a different kind than mind. Because it does this, it circumvents the hard problem of consciousness altogether. Because you don't need to reduce experience to something that is non-experiential in nature. There is no such a thing. It's all experience. It's just that experience continues beyond the horizon of the individual center of awareness, that point of view we occupy in life. That's one point. The other point is it's much more consistent with the latest empirical data from the neuroscience of consciousness and foundations of physics. Because what this data is contradicting in foundations of physics, for instance, is the standalone existence of physical entities that's contradicted by laboratory evidence. Well, it doesn't contradict idealism because under idealism, physical entities indeed do not have standalone existence. They are mere appearances, dashboard representations of a deeper layer of reality. That's another point. There is a point of parsimony. It makes less postulates about what's going on than the other theories uh, on the table. So just quickly, parsimony just means the simplest explanation. Simplicity, yeah. But parsimony means that uh, you require the least number of postulated entities beyond immediate experience. So if you can account for everything with the least postulates, that's the simplest explanation and the more likely to be true. Yes, okay. And then just quickly, the laws of science aren't made redundant by all this. Of course not. Uh, science is the study and modeling and then the prediction of the behavior of nature. The understanding of how nature behaves remains the same regardless of what nature is. Whatever it is, it behaves the way we know it does. Now, that knowledge is very limited. There are many things we do not know about the behavior of nature, but none of the things we do know becomes invalidated uh, by idealism. Science is still just as valid. What, what falls through the cracks and, and then may be re refuted is scientism, is the attempt to create a hidden metaphysics out of certain scientific prejudices about what the world should be for it to behave the way it does. But science itself, no, it, it remains intact. Okay, when Sam Harris, who has got the Waking Up app, neuroscientist, etc., when he says these ideas or describes them as highfalutin, what's your reaction to that? I don't think Sam Harris knows what he's talking about, which is surprising for someone who brandishes a bachelor's degree in philosophy from Stanford. 
he conflates idealism with solipsism and therefore burns a straw man, uh, um, which is a philosophical term to say that what he's refuting is not idealism, it's his own hallucination and misunderstanding of what idealism is. So he's refuting his own, his own hallucination, which is fine if he didn't have a large platform and weren't perceived as somebody who may actually know what he's talking about because he's just perpetuating a pernicious misunderstanding and he seems to be largely unaware of his own ignorance. So all in all, I think he's quite negative force in the cultural dialogue right now because of this mismatch between how he is perceived as a deep thinker and the immaturity, shallowness, and vast ignorance of, of what he has to say. Right. So, Bernardo, something that you introduced me to was the, the difference between phenomenal consciousness and meta-consciousness. So meta-consciousness being you know that you're having an experience. So right now, I know I am talking to the two of you. And it seems I was very surprised when I heard that a lot of scientists <laughs> confuse metaconsciousness with phenomenal consciousness. So for example, and correct me if I'm wrong, the phenomenal consciousness could be my cat could come and sit over here and out of the corner of my eye, I might be aware of it, but I might not have picked up on it. That would be an example of phenomenal consciousness, would it? Yes, that would be an experience that you have, you are experiencing it, but you're not telling yourself, oh, I am experiencing it. Okay. Rupert then, so when we've spoken about flow and things like that, and when experience becomes so intimate that there's you can't separate yourself out, are you talking about, and the inherent peace and joy and all those things in that, is that, are you talking about phenomenal consciousness and not meta-consciousness there? Yes, because we can be, um, we are intimately one with the entire content of our experience without necessarily having to represent it to ourselves. For instance, the tingling sensation at the soles of your feet. Well, the moment I mention it, metaconsciousness begins, but your experience didn't begin. You were experiencing yeah. the tingling vibration at the soles of your feet, but it was it was because of your focus on the content of our conversation, the sensation of the soles of your feet was just a, a faint whisper on the, on the extremities of your experience. So you don't represent it to yourself, but you were experiencing it. Now, even more subtle than the tingling sensation of the soles of your feet, your breath. As soon as I mention it, you become aware of your breath. Actually, you didn't become aware of it. It just came out of the background. It came out of the shadows of your experience and you become meta-conscious of it. You represent it. Oh, I'm aware of my breathing. You don't become aware of it. You, you, you just become aware that you were previously aware of it. Now, go one step further back. The awareness of being. The awareness of being. Our being is even more transparent, even more silent, even more veiled by the content of experience than is our breath, which is, we could say, the most transparent of all our experiences. But just the simple awareness of being is even more transparent. Now, if I were to say to you now, be aware of the fact of simply being, you would suddenly become metaconscious. You would suddenly be, become aware of being. No, 
you were always aware of being. But a being was, if not completely eclipsed, largely obscured by our awareness of objects. And by objects, I don't mean physical objects, I mean thoughts, feelings, sensations, and perceptions. Now, when I say we become aware of being, I, I don't mean that being is something we can become aware of, like a table or a chair. We are essentially that being. It is we, this being, who, who is inherently aware of itself, but overlooks its awareness of its own being in favor of the content of experience. And we seem, as a result, to forget or lose ourselves. And therefore, we have to engage in this process, which is called self-inquiry or prayer or meditation, where we return from the adventure of experience, trace our way back to the simple fact of being. Right. We're in the final straight. Before we get on to the implications, which is a pretty important thing, just a couple of other quick fire things that are for you, if, if, if you wouldn't mind, Bernardo. And then, sure. Um, first of all, the evidence that the structure of the brain is uncannily similar to the structure of the universe. Yeah. So if the brain is what conscious experience looks like when observed from the outside, from a third or second person perspective, then if all the universe is actually the appearance of one universal mind, you would expect to find a structure in some way similar to that of the brain, because both are appearances of mentation, of experiencing. So is that the case? It, it turns out that it, it is the case. And um, studies have been done to avoid comparing misleading pictures, because if you're comparing just pictures, you know, you can crop a picture in just the right way and do some color filtering just the light way, that, right way that anything looks like anything else. But these things were studied with the tools of information theory, network topology, where you can derive, you know, specific salient properties about the structure of the universe at its largest scales and the structure of brains, the network structure, and they are uncannily similar. And there is nothing known in physics that could justify this uh, similarity. So that's curious. Right? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's very uh, curious. And then another thing you introduced me to was the dissociative identity disorder. Now, I, I was phenomenally conscious of it to a degree. But um, but but I wasn't you know wasn't really familiar with it, and I want to tie this in with an objection to idealism because there are lots of objections that you can swat away. I've I've seen you do it, and there are, there are places for that. But a very obvious one is, for example, that I can't read your thoughts, you can't read my thoughts. So I was wondering if you could relate that to the dissociative identity disorder, particularly the Harvard paper. And then the, the, the woman who couldn't see. I've given you a lot there, but if you can tie them all together with a, with a nice little bow, that would be great. Yeah. So there is this psychiatric well-known condition called dissociative identity disorder, in which what was originally one center of awareness seemingly splits into multiple and separate centers of awareness, which used to be called multiple personalities in multiple personality disorder. Dissociative Identity Disorder is the new name in the DSM-5, the new manual of psychiatry. Until the beginning of this century, there were doubts whether this condition really existed because all we had was what patients reported, being different people, having different ages. And some doctors thought, well, this is just an attempt to get attention 
this condition doesn't really exist. But since the advent of neuroimaging, you know, the ability to image the brain activity, we know that the condition is real. One example is the study done in 2015 in Germany. A woman with a dissociative identity disorder had multiple alters or split-off personalities, a couple of which claimed to be blind and the others not. And the host was not blind. And her visual system was intact. So they had this brilliant idea of instrumenting her with an EEG cap to measure her brain activity. And when a blind alter was in executive control of the body, a brain activity in the visual cortex here, the back of the brain, would disappear, even though the woman's eyes were open and there was nothing wrong with her visual system. Um, now, that's something you cannot fake. And um, when the host personality or one of the, the other alters would assume executive control, normal brain activity would resume uh, in the visual cortex. So dissociation is literally blinding. It is capable of rendering you blind to what is right in front of your eyes, even though your eyes are open and working. So, of course, it can render me incapable of reading your thoughts and the other way around, even if we are part of one universal mind, one universal consciousness. Uh, we know that one mind undergoing this empirically established phenomenon of dissociation can seemingly split into different centers of, of awareness that become blind to what's happening in the rest of that mental context, even though at a fundamental level, it's all one mind. And we know that that's the case because people with DID can be cured. Those alters can be reintegrated into one host personality, which then remembers the memories of each alter as the person's own integrated uh, memories. So my, my hypothesis is that this is what's happening right now. There is only one universal consciousness. And we are dreamed up avatars, like in Rupert's metaphor. Keep in mind, a dream is a dissociative state. You think you are your dream avatar, and you are not doing the streets, the cars, and the houses around you in the dream. While, in fact, it is your mind doing the avatar and the streets, the cars, and, and the other houses and everything. It's one mind doing, doing the whole thing. But in the dream state, you become dissociated from yourself. You split into the part of mind doing the context of the dream and the part of mind doing uh, the avatar. So that's an example of dissociation. We are dissociated alters of this universal mind, and that's why we seem to be separate. But the underlying subjectivity in all of us is not only identical, it's one, it's the same. Just like it's the same underlying subjectivity doing the streets, the cars, and the houses in the dream, and the dream avatar. And you've shared a lovely story elsewhere. Well, it's not necessarily actually a lovely story at all, but a story about a, a woman with several dissociative avatars, or uh, alters, sorry, and she had this one dream, and they were all in various positions within this dream. Oh. I mean, yes, it, it, was, it was actually a bit of a gruesome scene, but it basically perfectly matches with Rupert's we are one dream in consciousness. Yeah, that was, uh, that was researched by Dita Barrett from Harvard. She studied the dreams of patients with dissociative identity disorder, or DID, which is just an extreme form of dissociation. We all undergo dissociation. If you don't remember something you do know, you know that there you are. You are dissociated from yourself. But DID becomes pathological because it becomes dysfunctional, so strong it is. 
Now, studying the dreams of patients with DID, the researcher realized that uh, one quarter of them had dreams in which multiple alters were present, each alter experiencing the dream from its own point of view, and then relating the dream in a waking state from their own point of view, and each alter could see the other alters in the form of their own dream avatars, so to say. Actually, there was a dream in which one of the alters clubbed the other over the head with a stick. So you see, in your own mind, one mind, you can have multiple distinct centers of awareness that not only see each other, but can club each other over the head. So that happens in the mind of a person. Uh, the hypothesis here, as Rupert suggested, is take this one level up. This is what's happening in the mind of nature. Uh, we can see each other, interact with each other within the dream we call life, and even club each other over the head. Right. Let's move on to the implications. The so what question. Because this ha does have implications for the end of dissociation, aka death, the ways we relate to other people, the planet, ourselves. So Rupert, can you could you kick us off, please, with what do you think is the most profound and important implication of this understanding? I think there are three implications. The first in relation to our interior experience, and that is the peace that is the nature of our essential being, begins to progressively outshine our afflictive emotions. In other words, suffering reduces dramatically and, and is replaced by this quiet joy or causeless joy. That is a, a joy that, that is not derived from anything that takes place in the content of experience, that is derived directly from its source, namely being. Uh, in relation to our external experience, um, first of all, in, in, in relation to people and animals, as I suggested earlier, at some point, there is this feeling that, that our being extends beyond the limitations of us as an apparent individual. And there is this, more than just an intuition, this felt sense that we share our, what we essentially are, our being with, with all people and all animals. And this it doesn't mean to say that we no longer have disagreements with people. We can still have opposing points of view, discuss them and even argue about them. But there is this, increasingly, there is this felt sense that we, we share our being with all people and with all animals. That, that, that's the experience we refer to as love. And this recognition of our shared being informs the way we treat people and animals. And then the third consequence of this understanding is that we intuit or recognize that we share our being not only with all people and all animals, but all things, all of nature. And this recognition restores the proper relationship with nature. And we live in harmony with our environment because we not just understand, but we feel that what we essentially are is what it essentially is. So the exploitation and degradation of our environment uh, diminishes and we live a life um, individually and collectively that is in harmony with nature. Bernardo, just in terms of the death problem, 
And actually, it reminds me of something else I wanted to mention to you, but I previously forgot, which is further evidence, I believe, for analytic idealism, for non-duality, etc., which is that two examples. You give the example of a fighter pilot who does the centrifuge thing, who blacks out. So the blood is gone from his brain and you'd expect there to be no experience. But actually, the experience is reported to be even richer. And then there is the case of psychedelic experience. Now, anyone who's done psychedelics knows that, you know, the experience is rich beyond imagination, really. But you would expect in that case, would you not, the activity of a brain to go up. But actually, the opposite in both cases happens. So I don't know if those are relatable to the broader question. Totally. Yeah. So under at least analytic idealism, if not idealism in general, what we call life, biology, metabolism, organisms, is just what a dissociative state in the mind of nature looks like when observed from a certain perspective, from across a dissociative boundary. That's what life is. It's the appearance of a dissociated state. It's what that dissociated state looks like. So if death is the end of life, then it's, it's the end of dissociation. So you would expect that if your ordinary brain function is fully compromised, in other words, you died, you would expect your dissociation to end, your inner life would then be reintegrated into a broader context. And what you would experience is an enrichment of awareness, not the extinction of awareness. So precisely the opposite of the prediction of materialism. Now, we cannot talk to people who really died for obvious reasons. They are no longer dissociated. So there is nobody here to talk and tell us. And the ease near-death experiences may be, but I cannot ask my father who died when I was 12, you know, what it was like. So what can we do instead? We can look at things that approach the death state, severe compromises of brain activity, and ask ourselves, do people report an extinction of awareness or an expansion of awareness? So when you put pilots in a centrifuge, and they become unresponsive because the centrifugal forces drain blood out of their heads. So their brain activity becomes highly compromised, much reduced. And when they come around, they report, quote, memorable dreams. That's the words used uh, in the academic paper that uh, related this study. So here you have an instance of severely compromised brain activity being correlated with enriched experience, which is what you would expect if life is a dissociative state and death, the, the end of the dissociation. Psychedelics, until 2012, if you would have done a study and realized that psychedelics light up your brain like a Christmas tree, materialists would say, aha, of course, we always told you so. It can't be any different. The brain generates experience. So if you have a mind-boggling experience, your brain is lit up like a Christmas tree. Now, from 2012 until today, we've tested multiple psychedelic substances in multiple institutes, multiple groups, multiple testing procedures and protocols. And the one major and consistent result is that psychedelics only reduce brain activity quite significantly, and they don't increase brain activity anywhere else. So the suggestion that I would make is that the brain activity that is being reduced by psychedelics is the brain activity that is the appearance of the dissociative process itself. It's a model for death. It's a quasi-death. You enter the death process, but you don't go all the way into it. You come back and to, to tell the story. 
and the stories people tell are mind-boggling. And it's not only G-force or G-lock, G-force-induced loss of consciousness, which is not a loss of consciousness at all. It's a loss of responsiveness. In psychedelics, there was a study in Brazil about uh, psychography, which is some people claim that they can enter a trance state and write down all kinds of things that they are not supposed to know, but somehow they get to know them. Turns out that people who can actually do that, they can write very complex text while brain activity related to language and logic and text writing is severely uh, reduced under their trance state. Or teenagers playing the dangerous choking game in which they partly strangle themselves in order to have a high. And if you see the descriptions of that high, it's like, well, they're going back to cosmic consciousness. Uh, and how do they do that? By restricting blood flow to the head and severely compromising ordinary or normal brain function. Nobody should do that. It's unsafe. You can die if you do that. But teenagers do that. I mean, the list goes on and on. Bullet wounds to the head correlate with acquired savant, enhanced cognitive st uh, skills because of bullet wounds to the head. I'm not saying that every time you wound your brain, your consciousness will expand. No, most of the times you will compromise the contents of your dissociated alter and your cognitive skills will reduce, your memory will reduce most of the times, almost all the time, that's what will happen. But if that, that damage happens in, in the part of this image we call the brain that correlates with the dissociative process itself, as opposed to the mental contents of the dissociation, then in those rare cases, you should have an expansion of awareness under idealism. And under materialism, there should be none of such cases, not one. Even one contradicts materialism. And it turns out there are loads of such cases. The literature abounds with such cases. And just one last thing, Bernardo, uh, and this is something you talk about as well a lot, Rupert, deep sleep, the awareness of absence. But Bernardo, you say when people in deep sleep, when they're hooked up to a machine and are woken up, they report some pretty funky stuff. People dream, we know that. But dreams have a particular signature on an EEG, a tool that allows scientists to read your brain activity. So what is new in this research is that they woke people up when they were not dreaming. And they knew that because the EEG reading did not have the characteristics of a dream state. So they wanted to know whether when people are asleep but not dreaming, whether they are really unconscious dreamless sleep is this a lack of consciousness on the idealism it shouldn't be because consciousness is all there is there is no such a thing as total unconsciousness there is only dissociation and lack of metaconsciousness but not phenomenal unconsciousness so they would wake people up when they were not dreaming and ask them quickly were you unconscious or were you experiencing something and people would systematically report they were experiencing things that were in dreams and they categorized those things in, in three different boxes. Dream thinking. Turns out that you can think while you're dreaming. Subliminal perceptions. Uh, you may be feeling the wind when your window is open. Even though you are asleep, you are still having that perception. Or what they called selfless states of awareness, by which they mean a state of awareness in which you do not have the identification with an individual self. So apparently... Throughout the night, you are experiencing things during your sleep, even if you are not dreaming. Okay, that very much correlates with what you say, Rupert. Now, just to finish then, if this, the perennial understanding reasserted itself and became the typical understanding of reality that 
most people had across the world. What do you think would happen to the world as a result, Rupert? I think people would be generally much happier. There would be much less uh, depression, anxiety, fear, despair. There would be much less conflict in the world, conflicts uh, between um, individuals, either in intimate relationships or friendships, between families, communities, nations. Take the conflicts that exist now between nations. They are all perpetrated by people who do not understand or feel what we are speaking of here. Those conflicts would come to an end. And as I said earlier, it doesn't mean that we would necessarily agree with everything. There would still be points of view, different points of view and discussions. And those discussions may be heated, but they would be informed by this, this understanding. There would be more tolerance, more openness, more ability to listen and feel another point of view, not just be stuck in one's own perspective. We would be a more compassionate society. We would take care of our animals much better. We would, uh, as I said earlier, we'd have a, a harmonious relationship with nature. And that, that would have implications for... There's no area, there is literally, there is no area of society that would not be profoundly affected by this understanding. It, it would infiltrate um, education, commerce, government, economics. It would transform everything from the inside. This is what you're working towards, isn't it, Bernardo? Uh, I have a more realistic view, I think, <laughs> of, uh, of what I'm doing. Look, analytic idealism as a conceptual theory, it doesn't change anyone's lives in and of itself because it's something of the head. It's, it's conceptual. It's thought stuff. It doesn't sink into the rest of your felt being, into your heart, uh, into your emotions. You know, you, the, the lived presence uh, of, of your life is not directly affected by it. So what I, what I see as the role of what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do, or what nature is trying to do through me, is to help people give themselves permission to truly listen to Rupert and others uh, like him. It's a secondary role, but but nonetheless, I think it's it, it's an important role because there may be people who listen to Rupert and their intuition is screaming to them, this man is right. He's saying something important. But then comes the intellect and says, ah, but wait a moment. If a surgeon cuts into my brain, my experience changes. So how come experience is primary? Now, the intellect is the bouncer of the heart. My role is to give yourself permission to keep that bouncer under control, to not let him rule the pen, <laughs> if, you know, if you know what I mean. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. But real transformation comes from feeling it directly. And I can't help people do that. Mm. Rupert can. So I, I think my role is to sort of... Pave uh, the way? For people who are intellectually driven, which is not the majority, but it's, it's a group of people who are disproportionately represented amongst the group that has their hands on the knobs and levers of human civilization. That group is prone to having a bouncer, an intellect-driven bouncer of the heart that is totally out of control. And those are the people I'm trying to reach to not really prime them, but to make them more receptive to the transformative direct experience of non-duality that Rupert can help them achieve. I don't want to come across as putting myself down too much. It's a secondary role in the sense that it is indirect but I think for this particular group of people, it, it's something that is needed. So uh, I don't want to, to come across as uh, unduly or artificially too modest. And I'm just aware of what my role is. Sure. And, and... and this group of people, though, you mentioned, though, if they became more open to this, it would trickle down far more easily. Of and course. Then, um, you talked about the intellect is the, the bouncer saying, no, what about the surgeon's scalpel? But there's also that wanting to fit into a into a tribe, isn't there? Of not wanting to stand against what is the perceived correct way of viewing things. I know this even as a sports reporter. I pretended to be a football fan for many years for the exact <laughs> same reason. That's a fundamental thing as well, isn't it, Rupert? It, it's it's the tipping point. Yes, yes, I think. Well, I think all three of us can um, identify with this now because none of us are beholden to institutions for whom we are dependent for our livelihood. So nobody is telling us what to think or what to say. And that uh, gives us uh, um, great freedom. We don't have to compromise. We can all speak our, uh, our understanding such as it is without fear of being censored, uh, in this day and age, you don't get um, executed for it, but you lose your job for it. You lose the respect of your peers if you're in academia, etc. And I think um, all of us, all three of us, are, are free of any such external pressure. I, I, and I, I, it, it's no coincidence. It's because of our, in each case, I believe that our, our love of truth, the, the universe, let's put it like this, the universe has cooperated with our love of truth and has uh, provided circumstances for each of us where we can speak freely without fear of censorship or, or, or um, condemnation. Or, or, uh, that's one thing. And then there's another thing, which in a way is a, 
possibly a, a, a deeper reason that en enables us to do what we do in that our our sense of ourself is uh, no longer invested at, at least to a large degree no longer invested in the amount of respect we derive from our colleagues um, whether we're admired or not how many facebook likes or, uh, our, our sense of identity is derived from uh, our intuition and recognition of truth. And that gives you great courage. Doesn't mean to say that you necessarily go out fight, fighting or that you become very argumentative, but it gives you this quiet courage to stay with truth such as you understand it and to speak it, irrespective of the consequences for your personal life. Which is what you were talking about. The devotion to the truth is stronger than your devotion to yourself as a personal entity. Right, I've asked everything I want to ask. Before I lay out just a final thought, is there anything uh, either of you, Rupert, or you, Bernardo, would like to throw into the mix? I'd love to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love to listen to Rupert. I mean, his choice of words is always so yes. precise and he systematically hits the bullseye with the minimum number of words. It's a delight, it isn't is. it? I mean, I'd love to do this again. Absolutely. I, yeah. I, I would love to do this again. The quality and content of this conversation gives me the same joy I experience when I listen to um, a Bach sonata. It, it's the same quality of intelligence and sensitivity that I experience in that music, which gives me this, this joy. I, I experience the same joy. And, and that, for me, is the, the hallmark of truth. Somehow, truth and joy, they're always connected. Plato made the same point you just made. Yeah. yeah. It, it's a universal human intuition. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, I would agree. As Roger Federer retires, here we are. That's, that, that's for me. <laughs> and and the one, one thing I'd like to just add is um, Steve Jobs. And I was looking for this quote just a minute ago. I was trying to do it subtly, but I couldn't find it. And obviously my phone's off anyway. But it was something along the lines of something comes along once in a while that changes things. He was obviously talking about an iPhone. And it has, I mean, he was right. It has changed things. But I would suggest that the sort of the work you're doing and both of you and the collaboration and the potential impact of that could be far more profound so I just want to say, um, you know, that what a, a joy it's been to talk to you both. And also just to tip my cap and say what you're both doing is very important, very special and very appreciated. So thank you. Simon, thank you for saying that. I just want to add one thing. Please don't um, exclude yourself. Thank you for, for um, orchestrating, moderating this conversation your own very particular quality to draw out threads of conversation and, and understanding that that is that is important but Bernardo and I have known each other for for several years we've had several conversations in in private and I've often talked about how much we would like to do this but we've never managed it we've always said oh yeah it'd be lovely I'll come and spend a weekend with you in Holland we'll just leave the camera on and we've, we've had various ideas but it's never crystallized into a form Although both of us, I think, have wanted to do this. We both intuited just how rich it is and, and, and could be. So, um, you know, th thank you. It's a very particular skill for drawing out these the, the, the conversation. And I share the same sentiment. Well, that's very much appreciated. You're both very kind, which doesn't come as a surprise. 
anyway uh, it, it has been a joy thank you very much indeed and uh until next time goodbye thank you Simon. thank time. you Robert. thank you both of you lovely lovely to be with you thank you Thank you for listening to this conversation with Bernardo Castrup and Rupert Spira about the nature of reality. I really enjoyed listening to Bernardo and Rupert breaking down materialism and building up analytic idealism or non-duality. I would suggest letting this one sink in for a while. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more, I've linked to both Bernardo's and Rupert's websites and books and other work in the show notes. And please do get in touch with any thoughts, ideas or questions you may have. My website is simonmundy.com. That's the best way to get in touch with me. And you can also sign up for my newsletter while you're there, Monday on Monday, featuring some of the key life lessons I've learned from these conversations and beyond. And again, please do share this episode wherever you can. It really does make a huge difference. And if you could rate and review kindly, I would be so grateful. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.